0: So good morning everyone. It's, um, it's really a terrific thrill to see so many of you here in our beautiful Robert H. Smith auditorium on a Saturday morning. For those of you who don't already know me, I'm Louise Mirror. I'm New York Historical's very lucky president and CEO because this is a fabulous, fabulous organization. Today's program, Immigration and Voting Rights, is part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. As, an always, I, as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great generosity, which has enabled us to bring so many fine speakers to this stage. Uh, I'd also like to thank all of the Chairman's Council members who are with us this morning uh, for all their great work and their generosity on behalf of this institution. Of course, my great colleague, Dale Gregory, who makes everything happen. Uh, You'll hear from Dale later on in the program. Today's program will include a question to answer session. You should have received a note card and pencil on your way into the auditorium. If not, you'll uh, be able to flag one of my colleagues in the aisles uh, during the program. The the note cards will be collected later on in the program, and that's how we'll be doing Q&A. We're thrilled to welcome three guests, uh, three great speakers to our stage today. Denny Chin is United States Circuit Judge for the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and a former United States District Judge for the Southern District of New York, where he presided over both civil and criminal cases. Christina Rodriguez is the Leighton Homer Surabeck Professor of law at Yale Law School and she is an expert in immigration law and policy. Her forthcoming book explores how presidential administrations have used enforcement power in immigration. Uh, We also are thrilled to welcome back renowned, renowned constitutional scholar Akhil Reed Amar, who is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University and also a trustee of the New York Historical Society. We are very, very pleased, indeed, this morning, to have with us two of our elected officials, both of whom have been uh, very active as advocates, both for immigration and for voting rights. And I'm going to introduce both of them now, and they will speak seriatim. We'll hear remarks first from Gail Brewer, who is our very devoted 27th Borough President of Manhattan. She's worked tirelessly. She used to represent us in the city council, so we know her well. Um, and she has worked tirelessly as a public official for forty years, promoting fairness and opportunity for all, and nurturing a higher quality of life in New York City. And she's also been a terrific friend and supporter of the New York Historical Society. We will also hear from Council Member Daniel Drum, who is a New York City Council member representing Jackson Heights and Elmhurst. Uh, Council Member Drum has been a progressive leader in Queens for over 20 years, and he serves as the chairperson of the Education Committee. He, uh, I've learned a lot from him. Uh, he is a very strong advocate of, for the rights of immigrants, of whom he has very many in his district. He also served in another great capacity, served the public, I should say, in another great capacity as a New York City public school teacher and uh, became familiar with this institution through our professional development programs. So let's hear first from our great borough president, Gail Brewer. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. I do love the Historical Society, so it's great to be here. And I also want to thank uh, Louise Mirror and Dale Gregory for the following I think people who complain the most love me the most. So everywhere I go, whether it's Fairway or just walking down Broadway, if somebody has a problem, they come up and they start complaining to me, right Right there. (laughs) Guess what? They love that the New York Historical Society is talking about immigration and voting rights. It has really been like, the people who complain the most, they love it. And I can't tell you how many people, Louise, have come up to me to congratulate you on this topic. Whatever else you've done, they don't care. But they are so happy about this topic and that you are doing it. So the folks in Fairway are ecstatic. Um, I also want to congratulate you on your three real experts compared to the rest of us um, for having them here today. And I know it's gonna be fantastic. But it's been said that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And we've been having a lot of deja vu lately. For almost a decade, mostly Republican-dominated state legislatures have been passing bills to disenfranchise voters. We all know about the photo ID laws, cutbacks on early voting, proof of citizenship laws, and some other even more creative ways to make it hard to register and hard to vote. I have to say that in New York State we're very progressive, as the great Danny Drum will tell you, but We, too, have our challenges. We need early voting in New York. We need to allow absentee voting for any reason in New York. And we need to allow automatic voter registration in New York. And as some of you know, we're one of 15 states that doesn't do that. So we have our work cut out. But even longer, there's been a rising tide, as we know, of anti-immigrant sentiment in this country which runs counter to our true values as a city here in New York and as a nation. Because this city and this nation were built, as we all know, by wave after wave of immigrants. The progress we thought we had made is under threat. The conservative movement's legal strategy succeeded in overturning Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, though the tools of Section 2 and Section 3 and the language access provisions of the Act are still in place. We know we have a president repeating lies about voter fraud. So now is a moment, and this is why it's so exciting to be here today at the New York Historical Society and ongoing as you can continue these discussions. Now is a moment where it is incredibly important to know and discuss our history and learn from it. The future depends on literally what we learn today. I really thank you for being here for all the reasons I discussed and because the Historical Society is so cutting edge On this topic so thank you to the Historical Society for putting this program together I'm delighted to be here today and I have just like you great respect for the folks at the Historical Society and for council member Danny Drum and I look forward to continuing to work with you on these important topics thank you very much
2: Thank you very much Gail for those kind words and thank you Louise as well. I'm Daniel Drum and I was a New York City public school teacher for 25 years before being elected to the city council and I re- did receive an awful lot of trainings right here in this very room, uh, both uh, through the district office and also coming on Saturdays to get that training. So I do have that special relationship and I'm um, and very proud to have gotten that training here. Um, you know, uh, I was elected to the city council in 2009 and my district is about 68% immigrant uh, population. And they come from all over the world. It's said that in Jackson Heights and Elmhurst, 167 different languages are spoken in my district. I do believe it is the most diverse place in the world. But um, some interesting numbers that came out, and their are estimates. But it's estimated that about 55% of the people who live in my district cannot vote. That leaves you with 45% who can and then an even smaller minority of people who do vote. Uh, So uh, when I got into the city council, I inherited legislation, which was originally proposed by Bill Perkins and then by Charles Barron, and which uh, Council Member Brewer at that time was also a co-sponsor of, uh, which would have allowed those legally present immigrants who were legally present in the United States to vote in municipal elections. So for city council, for borough president, for controller, for mayor, et cetera, so forth, and so on. I had 34 sponsors, which was a veto-proof majority at that time, uh, but the speaker of the council would not move that legislation forward. I have carried that legislation now into my second term, and I'm working on putting that forward, although it has not yet been introduced, uh, and actually it was a priority and remains a priority, But now with the election the way that it is, because of the election of President Trump, we have to weigh our priorities as well. And so our first priority uh, has been to prevent deportations. And that has taken a lot of resources away from us. I still would like to see this legislation move forward because I'm a big believer in democracy. And I believe that um, the founding fathers as well believe that um, if you're paying taxes, you should be able to vote, taxation without representation. And that is essentially what has occurred in my district and other districts as well, I think the neighboring district, Council Member Julissa Ferreras. And by the way, there is a precedent for this in New York City because um, anybody, documented or undocumented, who were parents of public school children could vote in uh, elections for school boards up until 2002 here in New York City. And that continues in Chicago today, I believe, and in smaller municipalities around the country. I believe in Maryland is one place, and in New England, I'm forgetting exactly which state it is. So I just wanted to throw that out, and I'm really grateful that we're having this discussion because I don't think that it's something that people really think much about. But that basic American principle of no taxation without representation for our immigrants many of whom have been living here four, five, six years, or even more in some cases, paying taxes, but not able to participate in the American system. And that's why I really wanted to be here today to say thank you to the museum, to our panelists as well, and to get the ideas rolling on this topic. So thank you very much. It's good to be here.
3: Good morning, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory. We wanna thank you, Gail Brewer, Danny Drum, so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. And now please welcome Denny Chin, Christina Rodriguez, and Akil Ridemar for a terrific, we know it's gonna be terrific. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. morning. It's great to see so many people out on a Saturday morning to talk about uh, immigration and and voting rights. Um, This is a hot topic. Uh, As you know, uh, President Trump and members of his administration have been claiming that uh, millions of people voted illegally in the last um, election, including many non-citizens. Um, the experts have largely refuted those claims, um, but we do want to start off with a case where there was uh, some uh, illegal uh, voting. Um, we have a half an hour. we're going to have a conversation. We're going to cover roughly four topics, I hope. First, uh, I want to talk about this Texas illegal voting case. Second, we're going to talk about uh, rights of immigrants, uh, including some of the historical uh, antecedents. Third, we'll talk about uh, immigrants and voting, including uh, some of the, the issues that uh, uh, the councilman member and uh, borough president mentioned. And if we have time, uh, we, we're going to talk a little bit about the travel ban, because it implicates some of these, these issues. I will not opine on the travel <laughs> ban. Uh, I'm in the Second Circuit. It is possible we will get a travel ban case, But I will tee it up for our uh, distinguished uh, Yale uh, professors. Um, So let's first talk about um, um, this Texas case. You may have read about it in, in The Times. Last month, Rosa Maria Ortega, 37 years old, mother of four, living in this country since she was an infant, was convicted by a jury of illegal voting. She had voted twice. Um, In 2012, 2014, she was not a U.S. citizen. She was a permanent resident, lawful permanent resident, and a green card holder. Her sentence, eight years in prison. Uh, What do we think of this case?
4: The outcome is clearly cruel uh, and heartbreaking, and the thought that an eight-year sentence would be applied to someone who made a mistake uh, that could be understood, especially of, of someone who has a limited education is is difficult to understand.
3: I'm not sure it was a mistake. I mean, i i it's not clear what her motivations mm-hmm. are, but
1: but
4: her lawyer claims it was a mistake that she thought because yeah. she could, as the councilman suggested, pay taxes mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, maintain a job that she's also permitted to vote. She clearly violated the law the The interesting one of the interesting wrinkles in the case is that, The attorney general of Texas actually offered to either drop the charges or mitigate the sentence if she would testify before the legislature about fraud in voting, but the local prosecutor wanted to make an example of her and continued with the charge. And I think it fits into this larger political narrative that there is voter fraud committed by non-citizens and we have to get tough on that problem. And so she found herself caught up in this political moment in a way that led to unfortunate results for her and her family.
3: Professor Marr, I mean, uh, what could be the rationalization for such a harsh sentence? Well, there are,
5: I think, don't mess with Texas or in Texas, um, and they think uh, there is this narrative that there's widespread voter fraud, and now they found um, a a case. Here's why, from a political science perspective, you should not expect to see um, um, lots of um, in-person voter fraud of this sort. So there's the voter. The fraud only works if the vote is decisive. One person is very unlikely to be decisive in any election. The odds are actually infinitesimal. Um, In order to shift an election, you need... And and the benefit of that isn't really captured by the voter, but by the winning candidates. Um, You need to actually tip elections to have lots of people do it, and that's going to leave a trace, typically. Um, So, you you know, there are basic structural reasons why we shouldn't expect that this would be the kind of of fraud, if there is any, that we're going to see. Also, when you show up, if you're not who you say you are, oh, there's a real risk of getting caught and see what what happens. If there's going to be cheating in the system, it's going to be the sort that you'd expect to see is um, uh, people uh, manipulating the machines. Um, cheating on the software if there's not um, sort of um, a a reliable um, system. But um, even absentee um, uh, uh, voter fraud might be, um, uh, you might expect to be higher just because you're not showing up where they can take a picture of you, even if you don't have a picture of yourself. There are video cameras and and all the rest. Um, For partisan reasons, the folks that wax uh, 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 pious about voter fraud... But
3: here this was... She just seemed to genuinely want to vote. It wasn't part of a a, a massive effort, as you were saying.
5: Um, And and there is, I guess, some dispute about her intent and understanding. Um, But but there are reasons why you don't see um, lots and lots of cases of in-person voter fraud. Because the consequences are severe. The benefit is very low to the person doing it. And it's not going to change the outcome unless lots of people do it. And... In that case, it's coordinated, and you should expect to see email trails and other things.
3: As, as someone who um, has sentenced a lot of people over the years, I probably sentenced 1,200 people over the years. To me, the sentence is exceedingly harsh. I, I don't know all the details. She probably didn't have a record. If she had had a felony conviction, she would have lost the right to vote. So she probably did not have um, a, a record. And under federal law, this was under Texas law, under federal law, there, it is illegal for a non-citizen to vote, and it is a crime, but the maximum sentence that can be imposed is one year. So that,
5: that, and, and one final wrinkle,, yeah. from a certain perspective, her, her real mistake, her crime, was not becoming a citizen, which she was eligible to do as a green card holder, right? right? And right. if she had done that... Well, then, you know, we'd be giving her a medal or something for voting, which is what we want people to do who are eligible.
4: And there are many people eligible for naturalization who don't naturalize, and the reasons are varied, uh, and they include include things like expense or concern that offenses in one's record might appear that could then cause the person to be deported, not naturalized. But it is a public policy concern that people who are eligible to become citizens be made uh, aware of that and then... Uh, enabled to become citizens
3: in in our courthouse we have naturalization every Friday um, and 200 um, citizens new citizens are sworn in but there is a, a table set up right outside the door of the courtroom for them to register to vote I mean that's how important uh, we think it is let's move to the the next area um, rights of immigrants um, what rights do immigrants have uh, in this country and what are the sources of those rights? And, and, and maybe we can talk about some of the historic cases that address this.
5: Um, so um, here, in, uh, so the immigration patterns in America are, are regional. Um, Boston and New England tend to get a, a, a lot of um, a, a sort of uh, religious dissent or Puritan types, basically um, from uh, England, uh, southern colonies, Anglican. Um, uh, uh, but here in the middle colonies, especially in New York, you get people, this was New Amsterdam um, before it was New York and Swedes and, and, not, and not just the Dutch, but um, Germans and others from the very beginning. The, the Dutch presence is, is particularly significant. So, so especially here in New York, you, 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 know, you get this very strong immigrant culture very early on. Of 55 people were there at Philadelphia at one point or another as part of the, the convention that drafted the Constitution. Eight of them were uh, born outside the United States. Uh, Seven of the 39 people who signed the Constitution were born outside the United States. That includes people um, uh, uh, like Alexander Hamilton, for example, to pick a prominent New Yorker um, from from Nevis. Of the first 10 justices on the Supreme Court, three are foreign born. Um, Of the first um, four, um, uh, uh, of the first six secretaries of the the Treasury, um, including Alexander Hamilton and Albert Gallatin, four of the first six are foreign born. Um, So um, people who weren't born in the United States in every state were part of the the electorate that voted for the Constitution, part of the we, the people of the United States, actually voted in the Constitution. Um, Important percentages, um, we don't know the precise numbers in every state, are foreign born. So it's a a very important part of our our basic constitutional experience.
4: So the the framework for immigrants' rights today at the constitutional level is quite uh, stable, uh, insofar as the rights at stake are those of people who have green cards or permanent residents, And the foundations of those rights trace back to the 14th Amendment that was added to the Constitution after the Civil War and are, are grounded in the equal protection of the law and due process of law, those provisions of the 14th Amendment that the framers themselves understood would apply not just to citizens, but to people more generally. And even as early as the 19th late 19th century, when Congress was excluding Chinese immigrants and there was a great deal of anti-Chinese hostility, especially on the West Coast, the Supreme Court was nonetheless interpreting the Equal Protection Clause to include uh, the Chinese. And Maybe to we strike- should
3: talk about um, the yikwo yes, case, one yes. of my favorite cases. Do you want to just tell...
4: So so uh, Yikwo versus Hopkins is a case uh, that struck down the application of a local ordinance in San Francisco uh, where the administrator was granting permits to operate laundries uh, only to white applicants and not to Chinese applicants. And In, in,
3: wooden, in, wooden, in, in, in wooden, wooden buildings. In wooden, wooden, wooden,
4: buildings. wooden, wooden buildings. The
3: or- ordinance said you could only operate uh, laundry in a building of brick or stone. Right. And if you wanted to do a wooden laundry, then you had to apply for… Special uh, permission. Special permission. And
4: so the only people given special permission were white applicants, and all Chinese applicants were denied. And the Supreme Court interpreted uh, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to apply uh, regardless of citizenship status and regardless of race and found that this pattern was so disparate that the motivation was a form of race discrimination and, and struck it down. And that, that precedent is the foundation of um, immigrants' rights insofar as those, that clause and the due process clause protect all people who are in the United States.
3: Even if they're not citizens.
4: Right.
5: And if I could just step back um, and set the, the, the larger stage since I told you about how prominent um, uh, aliens were, immigrants were, um, to the founding experience, okay, let me just... Um, remind you now of the the next great constitutional moment, the Reconstruction. The the Whig Party collapses um, uh, in the 1840s, um, and now the question is, what's going to sort of replace them? Um, And uh, before the Republican Party arises, there's for a brief little blip in American history, a new party. It's called the American Party, as in Make America Great Again Party, Um, and it's basic idea is um, um, anti-alien, anti-immigrant. The critics of it call it the know-nothing party. These these ideas will never be again associated in American history, know-nothingism and and a certain kind of Americanism. But but there was this moment, you see, and Abraham Lincoln, a rising politician in the Midwest, um, um, helps found a Republican party. And their big idea is anti-slavery, and the question is, whether they're going to also try to bring the know-nothings into their coalition. Millard Fillmore gets the, the nomination, actually, um, as uh, the, the know-nothing candidate. And Lincoln says, no, we are opposed to slavery, but we're not going to pander to this anti-immigrant sentiment. It's, it's, um, it, we, we will not do that. That's not what the Republican Party that I, Abraham Lincoln, want to co-found stands for. Uh, they are responding, and what draws Lincoln back into um, the political world, among other things, in a very, very big way, is the Dred Scott case in 1857. The uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act draws him in in 1854, but in 1857, the Supreme Court um, hands down a case that is hugely relevant on alien rights. Dred Scott says three things. Laws...
3: Can you just remind us what
5: happened in Dred Scott? Dred Scott is an 1857 case about um, uh, a man um, who was born as a slave uh, in Missouri. Um, His master takes him into free soil um, areas, like um, federal territory, Wisconsin, and into free soil states, like Illinois, um, um, where he's treated as a free person. He gets married, which only free people are allowed to to do. and then he makes a mistake. He goes back with his master to Missouri. And Missouri says, oh, well, you, now you're a slave again. And he brings a lawsuit saying, no, I was freed by my presence on free soil. And I wasn't to run away. My master took me there and thereby emancipated me. And when he um, stood up for me at my wedding, um, that's another emancipation. He knows that only free people can, can um, get married. And, and so, so I'm emancipated. Gets to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says three things, infamously. One, Congress can't prohibit slavery in the territories, which gets Lincoln very upset, because that's his whole platform is, read my lips, no new slavery, no slavery in the territories. Second, that black people can't be citizens of the United States, that's what Dred Scott said. The the case says, well, you know, you just can't be a citizen because you're black. Third, that only, and this is, only citizens have constitutional rights. Blacks can't be citizens, and only citizens have constitutional rights. And that's what Dred Scott says, and Lincoln disagrees, and the Republican Party disagrees, and when they add their, their second amendment to the Constitution, the first is eliminating slavery, the 13th Amendment, here's what they say and that Christine mentioned. They say, first, everyone born in the United States is a citizen, even if your parents aren't citizens. Birthright citizenship, no matter who your parents are, even if your parents are aliens, you see, whether they're here illegally or not. Second, all citizens have fundamental rights, privileges, and immunities that states can't mess with, including free speech, freedom of the press, due process, the stuff in the Bill of Rights. Then they say, so so now states can't violate due process. States can't violate free speech. But then they say, for citizens, no state shall deny due process or equal protection to any person. Now, why would they need to repeat due process when they had already said it before? Because they believe that contrary to Dred Scott, aliens, persons, have certain basic rights to equal protection and due process. So just when you pull out your copy of the Constitution, I know you all brought it with you, you, it's just there on the very surface, their rights of citizens, but then in addition, they specify the rights of persons above and beyond ordinary citizens. This is a direct repudiation of Dred Scott that said only citizens have constitutional rights, and Lincoln didn't believe that, and the Republican Party didn't believe that, and the 14th Amendment didn't believe that.
3: Is there anything in the Constitution that addresses uh, the right of aliens to vote? There are provisions on. Uh, voting by others. But anything? Um, Well, the second sentence, the second section, I just
5: went through the first section of the 14th Amendment. Birthright citizenship, privileges and immunities of citizens that that states can't mess with, and rights of all persons, equal protection and due process. That's Section 1. Section 5 says Congress shall have power to enforce all this, but the Supreme Court didn't really abide by that in the Shelby County case that was mentioned, which they struck down major portions of the the Voting Rights Act. Um, But section two of the 14th Amendment adds the words, the right to vote for the first time in the Constitution. It will be um, four more times it will be um, um, uh, repeated. 15th Amendment, the right to vote can't be deprived on racial grounds, 19th Amendment for women, um, for poll taxes in our lifetime for 18 year olds, but the first mention of the right to vote is Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, and it talks about a right to vote for citizens of the United States. Um, actually, in, indeed, male, inha- male citizens being 21. So it puts the word male in. It's, um, there's an age limit, 21. It's going to be later changed to 18. They have to be citizens. So in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, the core voters... Are citizens, but Christine is going to tell you now um, that actually at that time, even though maybe there wasn't a federal constitutional right of aliens to vote, they did vote in certain ways at that time.
4: So there is a rich and deep tradition of non-citizens voting at the state level in the United States, and it's something that has been part of the laws of various states since 1800. So between 1800 and 1830, a number of states adopted provisions that permitted non-citizens to vote. The reasons were not necessarily high-minded. There were states in the Midwest who wanted to attract settlers to develop their infrastructure and to develop their societies. And one of the ways to do that was to attract immigrants. Uh, In addition, the the Democratic Party uh, was largely in control there and, uh, for whatever reason, decided that Um, they wanted to be the party of immigrants. And by attracting immigrants through promising things like the right to vote, um, the right to sit on juries, they helped solidify the connection between uh, immigrants and the Democratic Party before the Civil War. Uh, There was also a a counter-tradition, and um, Akil mentioned the rise of the know-nothings in the 1850s. And uh, their xenophobia and concern, primarily about Irish immigrants, led a number of states in the Northeast to amend their constitutions to be very clear that citizens could not vote. New York was one of those states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Maryland, um, Virginia. And the concern uh, was that Catholic immigrants in particular would just do the will of the Pope. Uh, And there was also belief that these immigrants who were largely laborers in large cities were corrupt and would sell their votes and engage in voting fraud. So history repeats itself in the political rhetoric that we see around the issues of voting. And there's there's a contestation over this question up until the early part of the 20th century, and the practice finally dies out at the state level around 1926 And Arkansas becomes the last state to amend its constitution to limit voting to citizens. And since since then, the only voting rights for non-citizens have been found at the local level. Um, But it is a tradition that was an important part of settling and developing the United States and the West in particular by providing the foundations of, of citizenship for people and, who hadn't even become in the citizens. Early days,
3: in the early days, in the colonies, of course,
4: mm-hmm.
3: almost everyone was uh, an immigrant. And, and, yeah. and
5: uh, we just heard, at the, uh, since Christine mentioned sort of at the local level, this idea that for school board elections or municipal elections, aliens in a whole bunch of uh, municipalities vote, and this is partly kind of a training um, ground. So, um, uh, like training, wheel- so, so this is the, so the first stage in which you become, you learn, actually, uh, you, you, you prepare to be a full-blown American citizen where you're going to be voting on all sorts of things. Well, you start with school board elections because you're a parent of a kid in the school or local, municipal elections. Let me mention one other thing about the immigrant experience in voting. It's often, maybe I'm taking slight poetic license here, but we think about people voting with their feet. That's what the immigrant experience is all about, leaving the old country and coming to the new world, making a profound choice. You know, my life is so different because I was lucky enough to be born in the United States, but my parents, it's because my parents voted with their feet. They came to the United States, and when I'm born, they're not citizens, but doesn't matter. I told you, you know, um, that everyone born in America today is a citizen, whether your parents are citizens or not, even whether they're here Legal or not, but this voting with feet actually is one of the most important things in all of American history. It actually decides the Civil War. At the time of the founding, most framers thought that the population would actually increase in the Southwest um, more than the the Northwest, and really, sort of, the big population centers would be um, in the South. That didn't happen, and it didn't happen in large part because immigrants coming over uh, across the Atlantic didn't want to actually settle down in a slave culture. They wanted to settle on free soil in the Northwest rather than the Southwest, and that is basically the margin of victory in the Civil War, created by just massive people, just individually, maybe not even thinking about it politically, but deciding that the the Northwest is a better place to, to, to breathe free and to live than um, a slave society. So at
3: some point, um, 22 states allowed Mm -hmm. non-citizens to vote, and today there are none other than in some some local elections. Why? I mean, why did that happen?
4: I I think there are a number of explanations. Um, Most important is probably that the... Just The reason for non-citizen voting, the need to attract immigrants to settle the land, no longer exists. And you see a lot of retrenchment in immigrants' rights, including in California and the Far West, once the objectives of having immigrants come, building the railroads, settling the land, are completed. And so I think that's a big explanation for why. I also think that today um, there's an asymmetry. Uh, between the parties in incentive. So I think the Republican Party is largely resistant to the idea of non-citizen voting because most immigrants are going to skew Democratic. That's the reality of our political demography. Mm. And so you can advocate for non-citizen voting at the local level where you have a intense concentration of one party or the other. But once you get to the state level, there's uh, n- there's a lot at stake for, for both parties. and And I think... Citizens in general today strongly equate citizenship with voting. That is the quintessential act of citizenship. And so the concern is that you would denude citizenship of its meaning if you allow people who aren't citizens to vote. So I think those are three explanations. Well,
3: we've heard now about these recent efforts, uh, bills pending, not just in New York, and some other places, uh, Virginia, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. where you have heavy uh, immigrant mm-hmm. populations. So let's just talk a little bit about what are the, some of the arguments for and against, mm-hmm. and let's do justice to the arguments against as mm-hmm. well, so that we we, we have uh, uh, you know, both sides present, fair and balanced, balance, yes,
5: fair and balanced, yes. <laughs> to the extent you can. want to be you for
4: or against? <laughs>
5: Whatever you let, Why don't you go first?
4: So here? I think that the. Um... <laughs> In a contemporary sense, the arguments for uh, include what the councilman mentioned, which is if you pay taxes and you otherwise contribute to the community, you should have a say in the laws that govern you. And uh, in addition to that, I think there's a, a literature on immigrant integration that suggests that the more participation... Uh, that you make available to immigrants, the better their process of acculturation will be. That the more welcoming the legal framework is for non-citizens, the better they will uh, become accustomed to the norms and practices of the society. And so voting can actually be a way of inculcating civic values. So it's not something that you should have at the end of a long process of assimilation. It's actually part of the process of adjusting to a new society because it requires that you pay attention to debates that are occurring and then makes you feel a sense of pride and ownership over the government. So I think those are the modern um, theoretical and practical reasons that are given uh, alongside the historical ones that I've already suggested.
5: And maybe on the other side, since you've assigned, um, you know, uh, 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 and, I, and I actually think some of these are s- substantial points. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, until you become an American citizen, you have not renounced all allegiance to other nations in the world. Um, um, the American Constitutional Project is actually designed for the benefit of America. Donald Trump believes that. So do I. All my books have the word America in the title, America's Constitution, America's unwritten Constitution. And if we're being honest about it, the, the project wasn't designed for the benefit of the Brits, but to their detriment. We wanted to kick them out. And after that, we want to kick the Spanish out. We want to kick the French out, kill the Indians, control the continent, manifest destiny, and no doctrine, and no one will mess with us because we're the U.S. You're of A. supposed
3: to be doing four. Um,
5: <laughs> but they, no, no, but, they, but, but, but until one becomes an American citizen, one hasn't renounced... Uh, allegiances to these other powers who may or may not wish us well and so especially you know let's go back to this Texas case the argument would be if you want to vote become a citizen renounce the um, a citizenship and the allegiance to your, your birth country and we've made it possible but until you do that you shouldn't be voting. that, and, and, you know, since you asked me to try to make the forceful yeah. case, that would be a forceful case.
4: I, I also think that even those who advocate for voting rights for permanent residents would acknowledge that there has to be some period of transition such that not every non-citizen should be entitled to vote because not every non-citizen has um, a, a sense of common cause with the other people in the country. This relates to Akil's point about being truly American. And there is a process by which learning the language and learning some of the norms of our political system uh, occurs. And that requires some time present in the United States. And so Even those who say that long-term non-citizens who are residents should be allowed to vote would recognize you need this transition. And And so the debate is over how long you make that transition.
5: And even those of you who are citizens, even natural-born citizens, citizens uh, born in the United States, if you have dual citizenship because your parents um, uh, are Canadian or so, be very careful. Um, because certain acts, in the old days, uh, there was a lot of hostility, not just in other countries, but even in America, to dual citizenship. That's changed of late. But certain acts that you might perform could be deemed to be renunciatory of your American citizenship. If you, for example, run for office and are elected to office in Israel, the State Department would say, oh, you've renounced your American citizenship by I'm I'm holding political office in Israel. Um, Some state departments over time have even suggested voting in foreign elections is inconsistent with American citizenship. It's an act of renunciation. Christine knows these cases much better Mm. than I do. I don't know exactly what the state of play is today. But be careful.
4: The Supreme Supreme Court in In the late 20th century has has um, made it very difficult to renounce citizenship. And so it would take something like fighting in a foreign army or uh, serving in office in a foreign government. But it's the court requires that you have a specific intent to renounce. So if you vote in a Canadian election and you have the specific intent to renounce your American citizenship, then uh, the Department of Justice can bring a, an action against you and strip you of your citizenship. But over time... Because of um, growing suspicion about dual citizenship, the Supreme Court, in in the political sphere, the Supreme Court has solidified the concept of citizenship, uh, whether one has dual citizenship or is a naturalized citizen or is a natural-born citizen, as a way of making that almost an unassailable foundation for for rights.
3: We're getting close to the Q&A time. So let's just spend a, a, a couple minutes on the travel ban? Mm-hmm. You know, to what extent does it implicate the things we've been talking about? Uh, what are your thoughts?
4: So there, there's so many things to think about uh, what's happening. And I, I think it was either yesterday or the day before that a district court in Virginia found the ban was legal. So this is, this is a set of legal questions working their way through the court right now that go to the very heart of the president's power to exclude people from the United States and the grounds on which he can do that. And so the big question is whether the decision to exclude people for 90 days, uh, but to exclude them nonetheless, from six Muslim-majority countries reflects an establishment of religion or hostility towards religion or not. And that's, in a sense, what the courts are trying to figure out. And to me, one of the most interesting things about the cases is whether the courts are going to take into account statements that the president made on the campaign trail, statements that his surrogates have made to try to discern the intent of the administration, or whether they're going to look at the face of the order that now, in its current version, tries to make a strong national security justification and emphasize the limited reach of the order. Uh-huh. And It's a, it's a, I think, a moment for potential constitutional innovation.
3: Yeah, we should note that the judge in Hawaii wrote a 32-page opinion, Mm -hmm. and he relies on the statements outside the the travel ban, including on statements made by our former mayor Giuliani, that have been highly publicized, which
5: which is a little edgy, and you should not um, be 100% certain that that's what uh, the swing justice on the Supreme Court will think when it reaches uh, the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit. Is a, a very blue circuit. Um, the Supreme Court is not a blue court, um, and um, and if this is a, a Muslim band, boy, they did. It. I'm, I'm you know in the fair and balanced um, uh, department. Boy, they that's what they were trying to do. They did a crappy job of it <laughs> because um, uh, there uh, are you know a billion Muslims in the world, and uh, and most of the countries where most of them live are not covered by that. They're called India and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Indonesia. So. Um, these six countries are a pretty small percentage, maybe a hundred million Muslims compared to sort of um a billion and and ordinarily judges look at um the the government policy. So so if they're saying this very look at the, the, the words of the policy say if this very same policy would have been okay if it would have come from President Obama, but not okay because it came from President Trump, is is that actually proper? On the other hand, in p- some cases like Yikwo, which you heard about. Courts sometimes look beyond the formal words of a government policy to see if it's being administered with an um, uneven, uh, an evil eye and an unequal hand, whether it has some um, uh, real dark, um, uh, uh, improper, uh, discriminatory purpose. One final historical episode, uh, I know we have to go to questions. Um, We've been here before in a way, in a very famous way. Remember the Alien and Sedition Acts um, in the founding era, the Sedition Act made it a crime to criticize government, it made a crime to criticize the president, a crime to criticize the Congress, it wasn't a crime to criticize the vice president who was a leader of the opposition political party. <laughs> It was a crime for um, Republicans to criticize Federalists, in effect, but not for Federalists to criticize Republicans. It was a crime for challengers to criticize incumbents, but not for incumbents to criticize challengers. All these laws expired after the next election. Totally partisan. You remember the Sedition Act. But alongside it, there was a couple of acts called the Alien Act. There was the Alien Friends Act, the Alien Enemies Act, um, and one of these acts gave the president broad power to deport, basically, foreigners who had un-American, radical ideas. At that time, it was radical France, which is a hotbed of terrorism, as in the reign of terror, and there was a lot of anxiety that these terrorists were coming to America and infiltrating American society. Back then, it was French, um, you know, terrorism with these radical, un-American ideas. And today, there's some echoes, arguably, of this. But the source of terror is now seen as the Middle East. But again, this concern about infiltration of America by this radical um, proselyte, uh, this uh, radical ideology that seeks to, which was the French Revolution, could, and today seeks to conquer the world could with this ideology. We've spend a lot of
3: time on the <laughs> aliens and sedition cases, but we need to get to questions. Right. Um, so the first question uh, is. Um, Realistically, um, do uh, do you think these um, efforts will ever pass, or do you think, with, as, as this one person writes, with so many states controlled by the GOP, will voting restrictions uh, even increase?
4: I do think that it's an uphill battle to secure uh, non-citizen voting rights. Uh, the fact that it's been difficult to even restore voting in school board elections, much less Uh, municipal elections in places like New York City is suggestive that even in in largely Democratic and high immigrant locations, it can be challenging. But I think that that doesn't make the importance of pursuing the objective where there might be room for it um, a, a, a misguided idea. I think it can be a long process to secure those kinds of interests. What I would be most concerned about is that uh, states would attempt to preempt localities from doing that. States have the power to control their localities because localities are largely the creature of state law. And in in a lot of ways, uh, states are trying to tamp down local activism for a variety of progressive goals, but including immigrants, right? So you have Democratic states, or I'm sorry, uh, Democratic cities, blue cities in the midst of red states. North Carolina is a great example. And the states controlled by um, the GOP are, are trying to prevent those cities from being counterpoints. Right.
3: I mean, it, it makes sense in, in Queens not to let 45% dictate what should happen to the others, but it may not, there may be a problem in terms of uh, the state control, I gather.
5: The long-term demographics of America um, give some hope um, to um, uh, the blue team, um, because uh, um, uh, their coalition is younger, um, and um, so the other coalition will start dying first. um, And their coalition also has a much higher percentage of um, um, non-native and immigrant And as those folks become older um, and start voting more, so the the long-term prospects for the current um, red coalition are not great when you project out. So America is going to become increasingly like California and and New York um, according to certain demographic estimates. Um, Even today, more than one in two babies born in California is non-white, and eventually California itself will actually be... Um, majority non-white and and um, as as California goes long term so goes
3: the nation another question is what's wrong with requiring a voter ID cards why is it unreasonable to require someone to produce an ID when they go to cast a vote what are the objections
5: I think, actually, the government is perfectly within its rights to take your picture, you know, at the place. And if you're not who you say you are, well, there, there are sanctions for that. You know, there are these things called iPhones, believe it or not. Um, and they have little cameras on them, and you can, you can take it. Now, when they make me present the card, it's a little tricky because they give me that card for free. Did I have to pay for it? Did I have to take three bus rides because I don't drive in order to go to a place that gives it and spend a whole day getting it? And, and, and they work for me. Um, these officials who make it difficult sometimes. for me. To vote. I go into my polling place, you know, and they ask me for my idea. I say, well, who the hell are you? You know, I, I pay your salary. And when I move to my town, I got two little notices. One, welcome to Woodbridge. I moved from another town in Connecticut. Welcome to Woodbridge. Here are your taxes. So they know I've moved. <laughs> <laughs> then I get another one saying, welcome to Woodbridge. You need to re- um, a register to vote. So somehow, you know, the tax people know that I've moved from North Haven to Woodbridge, but the voting people don't know that I've moved. So, so when you graduate from high school, why don't they give you the ID card? Or when you naturalize, why don't they give you the ID card? Or when you get a driver's license? Why, so, so I'm for get everyone having an ID card, but the government should make it easy for me to do that. Otherwise, that's an in-kind poll tax. So have?
4: I think as, as a matter of theory, it doesn't seem unreasonable at all, but I think it's the Practical implications of requiring everyone to show ID—it disadvantages uh, the poor, the elderly, and minority voters who are less likely to have access to um, ID cards because they're expensive or it's difficult to get them. It's hard to get time off work to get your your ID if you don't actually need it, especially in places like New York where you don't have to drive or New York City. Um, and and so it's it's the disparate impact yeah. that that yeah. has. And,
5: and there are states where, for example, student IDs at a at a government college don't count, but a hunting license
4: does count. Mm. And those, those are designed precisely to allow certain types of people to have an easy time of it and other types of people not mm. to as a way of um, skewing the voting pool towards your party. And the there's no voter ID vote. for
5: absentee ballots, and that's where there's actually a greater possibility of fraud, but since in many places that has tended to be a Republican demographic, they haven't gone after that, even though there's probably more voting fraud with that. So
3: it's more the, the motivation behind mm-hmm. it then. Another person asks, if all persons are protected by due process, why are the detainees at Guantanamo and in US jails not given due process? Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> so I mean that's a very complex question. I think that the the first way to think about due process is that it it doesn't mean that you can't be detained. It means only that you have to be given an opportunity to be heard essentially. And depending on the liberty interest at stake and the government's interest, the amount of process that you get will vary. So uh, existing law doesn't require the government to show as much uh, before it deprives someone of an interest that's not that important, especially if it has a really important interest on its own. Uh, And so anyone who is imprisoned uh, and has been convicted of a crime would have Received a great deal of process and protection through uh, the criminal justice amendments to the Constitution. Guantanamo presents a different set of concerns, and uh, there were arguments made by the Bush administration that because Guantanamo is not part of the United States, the Constitution doesn't apply there. The Supreme Court rejected that because the United States is in control of Guantanamo, but then the question is, what exactly do the detainees there get? Uh, and that's what uh, the lower court, the D.C. Circuit, has been working out and uh, determining the extent to which the government has to show evidence to justify the continued detention of people at Guantanamo. And that gets into a very complex set of legal questions.
3: They have rights, but it's they have unclear rights, but yes, to what extent. their scope. <clears throat> Are there detriments to a green card holder who has no criminal record In becoming a citizen,
4: there shouldn't be. Uh, So it should be relatively straightforward. You have to have been resident for five years. You have to be attached to the constitution, and perhaps Achil can provide tutorials on what that means to be attached to the constitution and show good world character. Yeah,
5: (laughs) (laughs) that's a poll tax. Yeah,
4: Um, and I think. the the problem is that there can there's a lot of discretion built into that judgment and so someone might be concerned if they have engaged in some kind of political activity that might be seen um, negatively or have other questionable behaviors in their background that might not have turned into criminal convictions that a someone who's adjudicating a naturalization petition could say you're not of good moral character i don't think that happens especially often uh, but it could be one of the reasons why there's some trepidation if you're a green card holder to – to because you have a secure status in that green card to open up the question again and let the state have a second chance at you. And, and, but it shouldn't be a problem.
5: And on the other side, you're seeing that actually it's not quite as secure a status as being a citizen, mm-hmm. and that's what's being challenged right now. So just speaking very personally, when my parents became citizens, I, I was a citizen before they were, because I was born in the United States, and when they turned their green cards into, sit in effect, citizenship cards, oh, it was one of the, you know, the greatest days in my, you know, in the life of my family. My wife came over from India when she actually uh, traded in her green card for American citizenship at a naturalization ceremony, the sort that you preside at. You know, we all sort of wept with joy, So, so if... If, um, so um, those of you who know people who are green court holders, they, they should seriously think about become, you know, uh, becoming full-blown American citizens.
3: I should mention that um, you know, sentencing is, is perhaps the hardest thing for judges to do. One of the most enjoyable things is naturalization. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, as a circuit judge, uh, I'm now in the Court of Appeals, I don't get to do the uh, naturalization ceremonies. But when I was a district judge for almost 16 years, I got to do it. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, procedure and process, everything that. that, um, that your colleague, Jose
5: Cabranes, when he was a district judge, invited me to actually give a talk yeah. to a naturalization group. We, we all cried. It, it was yeah. it was a great event. And for me,
3: it was, it was particularly special because uh, I'm an immigrant myself. I was I was born in Hong Kong. Um, My grandfather actually came to this country um, illegally. Um, He came in in in, in 1916 when the immigration laws were in effect, and that was the only way he could come in. He bought a piece of paper pretending to be um, a U.S. citizen. Um, And uh, after the immigration laws were relaxed, uh, we were finally able to come here in 1956. And I recently, with all this discussion about the travel ban, I went back and found my parents' original passports that got them into this country. And because I was only two uh, with my sister and my brother, were with my mother, a photo of my mother and the three of us. But in there, it shows that I came in as a political refugee. My parents came in uh, under the the, the Refugee Relief Act of 1953. So, you know, it was a very special thing uh, for me. And when I... uh, did the naturalization ceremony, I would always tell um, the new citizens about my grandfather. In fact, I have his naturalization certificate hanging on the wall uh, in my chambers, and I would take it down and uh, show it to them.
5: And some of the people who were made citizens by the 14th Amendment um, were children of illegal aliens, because... The international slave trade was prohibited in 1808, and yet actually people were still smuggled in illegally. Today, in this city, there's probably illegal um, sex um, slavery going on, people being smuggled in. So some of the people who were slaves in America were illegal aliens, they had been smuggled in as part of a slave trade, and their children were born in the United States. And the 14th Amendment says they are all citizens of the United States, even though some of their parents were illegal aliens
3: from a certain point of view. Here's another question. I'm going to just rephrase it slightly. Um, we, in, in the recent reports, we, we heard about, about uh, folks who fought for the United States um, who weren't citizens mm-hmm. and then who were being deported. What, what, do you get any special rights by serving in the military? on behalf of the United States if you're, if you're not a US citizen?
5: Um, Christine mentioned that um, in the 1850s, a lot of states let um, uh, people who weren't yet citizens vote. Um, they, to, they want to path the citizenship. Today, we'd call them green card holders. One thing that happened is if you actually voted, even though you weren't yet a citizen, um, in the 1860s, when Congress actually introduces a draft, which creates the draft riots in 1863 here in the city of New York, but Congress said not only are citizens subject to conscription, but aliens who had already voted and who are on a path to citizenship, they're swept in two. So that's the other way. They vote first, and then they're subject to conscription. But that, that, that door has swung both ways. In American history, often military service has been sort of a foundation for sort of um, a voting rights. In our lifetime, 18-year-olds you know, who couldn't vote, um, that didn't seem fair if you're old enough to fight and maybe die in Vietnam, you're old enough to vote on whether you should be in that war in the first place. Blacks who weren't citizens at the time, but who fought in the, uh, with the Union, the Civil War, Denzel Washington you know, with Matthew Broderick and the Massachusetts 54th, that's what's gonna get, get black American males a right to vote in the 15th Am- Amendment because you know, they fought. At the founding, there were all sorts of people. They, you know, they fought for America and they weren't allowed to vote at the time because they didn't meet property qualifications. The Constitution gets rid of property qualifications because um, Ben Franklin, among others, said, Well, if you're old enough, you know, I mean, if you're, you're good enough to fight for America, you should be allowed to vote for America. So there's this interesting history in America between sort of voting and, and fighting. Why 21? I mentioned 21 before because in ancient Greece, 21 was the age at which a hoplite could bear his armor. Um, So intimate connections between um, voting. Women get the vote in part uh, under Woodrow Wilson because they're part of the war effort, Rosie the Riveter avant la Lettre in World War I. So intimate connections between military service and voting rights.
3: We're out of time. Do you want to have a last word?
4: There have also been, in addition to these historical examples, efforts by various administrations to... uh, reward military service in a sense by assisting family members to acquire mm. legal status. So the Obama administration had a policy of um, paroling into the United States the unauthorized family members of those who had served in the military, uh, which meant they had a legal status that authorized them to work. That's something that the current administration uh, is has done or is likely to do away with. But that's one example of the many ways in which the— um, it's the sacrifice that's embodied in military service is connected to the extension of citizenship. In the,
5: in the Civil War, they not only free blacks who serve in the Union Army prior um, to the 13th Amendment, but in Kentucky and other places, Congress has passed a law saying their family members will be freed. Mm-hmm. It, it,
3: and they gave them the right to become citizens. Yeah. So uh, we're out of time. I want to thank our speakers. Um, And I and I want to thank the Historical Society oh, for hosting you, us. Thank you, Denny Chin. Uh, we would love you to come back again. Christina Rodriguez, same to you. And Akil, of course, you're here all the time. <laughs> so um, let's give them a great hand. Thank you all for coming.